0: Hey, everybody. Greg Bendian here. As many of you know from the progressive music community, we recently lost a great drummer and musician, Ralph Humphrey. And in the last days of his time here on Earth, I was able to speak with him and interview him with my co-host for this episode, great drummer Andy Edwards from the UK. And if you're not familiar with Andy's channel, check out his content. He's got a lot of great progressive music and jazz content on his YouTube channel, Andy Edwards. So Andy was instrumental in setting up this meeting with Ralph. As you can imagine, I grew up listening to Ralph on Roxy and Elsewhere with Frank Zappa, Atlantis by Wayne Shorter, his work with Don Ellis. It's just vast um so i wanted to present this episode to you even though we had some technical difficulties and andy had to take over for part of the interview but the content's great and i think you'll enjoy it it's an incredible history lesson with one of the great musical drummers of my lifetime ralph humphrey enjoy hey everybody welcome to the podcast. i'm greg bendian and today's a kind of a unique episode because it's going to be a uh, intercontinental sharing of information related to rhythm. And today uh, we have two amazing drummers, so it's a bit of a drummer circle today. We have Andy Edwards from the UK.
1: Hello there, not worthy, not worthy. <laughs> oh, indeed you are, sir.
0: <laughs> and we have one of the, the heaviest cats in the history of drumming. We have Mr. Ralph Humphreys with us today, so that's a treat.
2: Thank you Greg. Thank you so much.
0: <laughs> good to have well, you Ralph. Good so good to see you again. So, I don't know where we should start because there's so much to cover. So, I know Andy's got a bit of a plan, so I want to throw to Andy and 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 Andy, you you get us started.
1: Um I would I mean cuz it's it's really starting for you, I suppose near the beginning is is talking about Don Ellis. And I've always felt that Don Ellis had a huge impact not only on fusion, but also on progressive rock. Both those genres are really influenced by him. And I hear that influence all over the place. Um, And obviously you're in there right right after Electric Bath, which I think is the seminal album. Um, In the background, I have got the George Russell album, Aesthetics, which I think is 1962, which features Don Ellis, right in the center of that sort of avant-garde experimental jazz. And I think he was so important in bringing those influences through into rock music, really. So, um, and and also uh, the drummer before you, Steve Bohannon, I would love for you to tell us about him because he's almost disappeared off people's radar, I think. So... um, can you tell us all about that time and you getting sure. into that? And
2: Sure. Well, I, I was introduced to Don Ellis, uh, at the time that first record came out in 1965, live at Monterey with Steve Bohannon on it. Uh, I was in, uh, going to college, San Jose state in California. And, uh, our, uh, our jazz band leader brought the album in one day to play for us. And uh, we were all astounded of course. And, uh, and, uh, this is when I was got introduced to Steve Bohannon, uh, who was also a fine B3 player. So he was not only a drummer, but a great keyboard player. Um, and uh, he had played with uh, Don sometime before with the jazz, the Hindustani Jazz Sextet. Uh, <clears throat> uh, and I got familiar with them after I heard this record. Uh, so uh, we were enamored totally with... with uh, with Don and and uh, our band leader said, "Well, guess what? I'm inviting Don up to play with our band uh, in a few months." Uh, <clears throat> well, wow! How fortuitous is that? And and I'm bringing and he's bringing Steve Bohannon with him. So I got I got a chance to meet Steve right away. <clears throat> and uh, but the thing is, the re- the rehearsal comes and uh, Don flies in and we're ready for the rehearsal, but there's no Steve Bohannon. Uh, he missed the plane. Uh, so guess who got to play the rehearsal? And, uh, and so that that's the beginning of the whole story here with me and Don Ellis, is that he got a chance to hear my potential because that's all it was at the time. Uh, but I was, I was a good reader. I had, had always been a good reader. <clears throat> and, I, and I clawed through the material, did the best I could. And then Steve showed up for the concert and I played second drums. Uh, and I got a chance to see Steve firsthand do his thing and, and just remarkable drummer. Just, he really had great instincts, uh, didn't seem to be bothered at all with time signatures, uh, had a great feel. Um, the unfortunate thing of course, is that Steve was killed in a car crash at age 21. Uh, and so he never really had a career after that. And uh, it's, it's a shame, uh, but nevertheless, uh, Steve was going to join the services at the NORAD band in, uh, in Denver to serve out his uh his duties uh, so he was leaving the band anyhow and uh and and this was me in 1968 uh well actually 1967 uh when i i got a call out of nowhere from don ellis uh i'm living of course in northern california in the bay area and he says look you know steve is getting ready to leave the band uh, and i'm looking for a drummer would you like to come down and audition and I thought, wow, that's that's really amazing that after a few months he's, he still remembered, you know what I did with him. And uh, I thought, well, what do I have to lose? This this is a great opportunity. And uh, I really didn't know what I was about to do. Stay in the Bay Area. I was getting a teaching credential. I was probably going to do some teaching, play the, play in the Bay Area with all the cats there. But I thought, well, hey, th- this might be my my foot in the door, to go to Los Angeles. So uh, I did go. I did do the audition. And, uh, and it was uh, New Year's night, 1968, in a packed club. It wasn't a rehearsal. I auditioned in front of an audience.
1: <laughs> in the Don Ellis band My God. with those charts.
2: <laughs> I, I, I can't imagine more, more of a hot seat than that. Um, and, must and have, you must have was, been
1: a good reader.
2: <laughs> well, and the other thing was this. He didn't really prepare me w- with what I was going to play. He just called me up in the middle of the first set and, and called up, I believe he called up New Nine, uh, which was one of the harder ones for me, actually. I remember listening to it and trying to figure it out. Uh, and then there were a few more tunes after that, and then the set was over. And then Steve came back up and played the rest of the night. And and people were ecstatic about the band. It was a very popular band at the time, you know. Uh, and so... Uh, Don invited me to his office after the gig, and said, "Well, what do you think?" And I was thinking, "Well, I I, I did okay, but I I don't maybe I'm not ready." And he said, "Well, you know what? I, I think you are. I think I, I'd like to uh, to hire you for the band." So that was that was the beginning of that, and and it changed my entire career direction.
0: You know, I, 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 not uh, enough is said about Don Ellis, and uh, I was wondering if you could tell us your thoughts on him as a musician, as a composer, as, a, as an instrumentalist.
2: Well, all of those things I think uh, he he excelled in. He, he definitely had a great compositional skill. Uh, he was involved in a lot of different kind of music. He was studying with Hari Harao uh, in Pasadena, California, a great tablist and sitarist, uh, along with a lot of other musicians at the time. Tom Scott, Roger Calloway, Joe Piccaro, uh Emil Richards, myself. Uh, you know, we all, me eventually. And, uh, you know, he was learning about all the Indian techniques and whatnot. I don't know where he got this bug to do this, I'm not sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, soon after that, you know, he formed the band and uh, and then soon after that, he decided to go electronic. He had a four valve trumpet, which allowed quarter tones. Uh, and And, you know, we wore we wore crazy uniforms, <laughs> Nehru jackets and uh, and others. You know, so the band had definitely a look, uh, and and the one word I could probably use always was it was really exciting, uh, even though it's at times it was kind of loose because I always felt the band needed more rehearsal, because the the music was hard, and and there were only a few of us that really took to heart. What Don was trying to do. Everybody else was just reading the notes and not necessarily having a feel for what he was doing. Uh, so I think I, I credit the rhythm section for most of his bands for for understanding what he was trying to do and and really, really getting a grip on uh, controlling the band. Uh, but yeah, it was it was a, a thoroughly exciting time. And and you know Don Don's trumpet playing, I, I think probably people have mixed feelings about his trumpet playing uh, as, a, as a soloist. Uh, you know, I, it's unique. I, I felt he had a unique style uh, and it comes from many different things. There may be Dixieland, uh, free jazz, uh, you know, uh, jazz, of course. Uh, but, you know, uh, I, I, I thought he was an innovator in so many different ways. And certainly his compositions were challenging exciting uh uh effective uh and uh he he, he just had a great a great sense of, of of presenting something that was very very exciting
0: and what was the culture uh of the musicianship particularly in the rhythmic department in the rhythm section but also outside of the rhythm section how did you guys deal
2: well, you know, you know, I got thrown into the band uh, uh, in 68. And so the musicians who were in the band at the time uh, were just about ready to leave because Don was getting ready to go on the road. And a lot of them decided, I'm done, okay? Uh, that would include- Well, was me.
0: there a burnout factor in this band? You no,
2: know, I, I think everybody felt, okay, I've done this enough. It's time for me to leave, right? Um, huh. And, and it, it could also be that some of them felt that Don tended to be a little too gimmicky. Um, and so they, they, they probably felt, well, you know what? I, I want to be a little more serious or I want to work my way into the studios or something to that effect. Uh, so there were a lot of great musicians who left at that time and then others came in. Uh, uh, a young piano player by the name of Peter Robinson came in. Mm-hmm. Really a fine player, just seemed to have a knack for it. Uh, i saw
0: him with brand x actually
2: well you saw a different peter robinson you saw j peter robinson this oh. was a, this was another peter robinson there you go uh, uh, like a kid you know very very young maybe 18 years old uh, the bass player at the time uh we had a couple different bass players some of them didn't work out so well um uh, chino valdez was the original congest in the band He was phenomenal. He seemed to have a knack Cuban guy uh, for Don's music. And he was very, very strong. He got replaced by Lee Pastora. Uh, And uh, the bass player that I ultimately liked playing with in the band was, his name was Dave McDaniel. He was really solid. Uh, A couple other piano players came in and and left and and we finally ended up with Milcho Levia. And, And that's a story unto itself, you know, how he suddenly found his way to U- the United States, first of all, kind of kind of escaping from Bulgaria at the time because of the political scene that was there. And and Don actually was the one that got him over. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I just remember us rehearsing and Milchow walks into the room and sits down and starts to play and, and we were all dumbfounded with what he could do. You know, uh, talk about a Bulgarian who knew M- Bulgarian music and was a fine classical pianist as well, uh, quite an addition to the band, I got to say.
1: Do you think this accusation of gimmickry, which I've read a few times with um, Don Ellis, um, do you think it was actually the a reaction in him against the avant-garde? Because he seems to he he went through that free jazz experiment, highly experimental, yes. and I I feel that he picked up the key some key features from Indian music. From avant-garde with the electronic music, uh, modal improvisation, microtones, and odd time signatures, mm-hmm. and I think it, it's a work. It's 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 a brilliant uh, with electric bath. A, a brilliant idea to then fuse that with rock music. Um, and I think, don't you feel like that's the problem with jazz? Is the way anybody who tries to make it make it accessible. <laughs> and in other words that means reaching younger people still making heavy yes. music but reaching young younger people gets right. accused of gimmickry which of course Miles did with bitches brew at the same around the same period of time
2: absolutely i mean we, we would play high schools and colleges so our audience was mostly young you know and uh, and they were enthralled they just they liked the excitement of everything and uh, and and the band really put on a great show don would always put on a great show he he. Don. Don had a heart condition. Uh, I don't know how long he had it, but I I, I always feel like he was almost over energetic. Uh, he would, he would get very very animated, conducting the band. Uh, he would get almost act like a kid, just get really really excited. Um, and so maybe it was just part of his his nature, but but I think possibly it contributed to. The fact that his heart was working really, really hard all those years and mm. it finally, it finally uh, gave out on him, you know, uh, but uh, but he, he was able to uh, e- energize the band and the audience every time he played.
1: So here's a question I'd like to ask you, uh, Ralph. Um, did you play on the soundtrack to the French Connection film? I did. Because I've searched to try and find a credit list for that. Uh, well, Don well, ma- well, Don made an album later, didn't he? Called Connection, and I know, but you did definitely play on the soundtrack for that.
2: Right. right.
1: Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> well,
2: both French Connections actually.
1: Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah, but the second French Connection is is different. It's it's more orchestral in nature. Uh, but yeah, I was I was involved in both of those.
1: Yeah. Um, if you think of of with, say, with William Friedkin films, like The Exorcist propelled uh, Mike Oldfield to superstardom with Tubular Bells. Why did that not happen for Don? I mean, he'd, he'd done the sound incredible soundtrack and an almost like that groundbreaking soundtrack. But he is a guy to me, who is just pioneering so much stuff in that period.
2: Right?
1: Why do you don't you think it, it, that has made him a household it, name? It,
2: it could have been that Don Maybe he could have gone that in that direction, which means maybe he would have had to stop playing the band and just do composing. You know, so it could have been his decision not to do that. Uh, but he did do films after that. There were a few films that we did after that. Um, you know, my, minor films. But uh, uh, you know, he he really loved playing. In fact, you know, he he started playing drums as well and then put himself in the band as a drummer as well, as the third drum set player. And uh, again, he played like a kid, you know, just an excited little kid. He just, he just needed to play. And so he had this energy inside him that uh, I suppose made him who he is.
0: You know, Ralph, you mentioned something earlier, which I had to connect for, for our listeners and, and for drummers in general. And that is, yes, the Don Ellis Band did play, in high schools. And one of the high schools they played in was a Pittsburgh high school where there was a student named Vinnie Kaliuta in the audience.
2: <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> ah, great.
0: And this, I, I covered this in, in my oral history that I did for, for Yale for Vinnie, but he said that that changed his life. Wow. That the Don Ellis band came to his high school and did a, um, Assembly program, you know, for the right, school.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Can you imagine that coming at you as oh, a high yeah. school music student?
2: And Don and and Don would actually, because he wanted people to know what we were doing, we would do little little clinics in the afternoon for high schools and colleges for those who were interested, uh, and and talk about and demonstrate what we were doing, and uh, I thought that was really cool, you know
0: absolutely I, I think that's a huge part of it you can't complain that people have no idea what you're doing if you can't present to them in some feasible way right. uh ground floor entry to to the yeah. lobby of what you're doing you know
1: exactly yeah the online well, i i must say ralph it's 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 i'm, I'm so pleased you mentioned roger Kellaway earlier because if you're very eagle-eyed and i put it there not knowing whether it would have any connection to this but behind me is a, is a Roger Kellaway album called Spirit Feel. It was mm-hmm. recorded in 1967. And uh, again, that was one of my dad's recordings uh, albums. And when I started drumming, I pulled that out. And it was an education because on the back of that album, Roger Kellaway has explained the time signatures divisions. It's like going to college. And <laughs> later on then, when I heard Frank Zappa and and the Mavish Orchestra, and then eventually Don Ellis, I had a key because of that Roger Kellaway album so the educational parts it that it's it, it came out of that album and yeah, it's the same thing with Electric Bathy they they, they they there was a lot of promotion and marketing around about the time signatures with the explanations in the you know Don would actually have the divisions as titles wouldn't he <laughs> Yeah I know I know yeah so uh, I I I think uh, you know the the service to music and to musicians and drummers was was you know, an incredible uh, thing. Uh, and I my... think,
0: you know, just the, the naturalization, the the uh, demystification of rhythm, which is essentially arithmetic. I mean, let's face it. It's not yeah, yeah. rocket science, right. as many people think, like, oh, we're in 19 now. Yeah, but there's groups of threes and twos and twos and threes, and, and yeah. you'll, you'll find the clave. And, and once we get you in on that level try to, you know, you see Indian guys doing this all the time, just trying to keep track of where everything is. That's right. And once you're listening in on that level, I think the the enjoyment does increase.
2: Yeah. You know, I, I, I tend to, I talk a lot to my students about, you know, the metric system and the, uh, the, uh, the uh, linear system, you know, uh, which is about grouping. And I said, yeah, you know, 19, 16 you know where's the beat well you know you you may not be able to find it because it's not there because it's all about subdivisions and so you need to find out where the main subdivision points are in the cycle and then hang on to that you know
0: that's really funny that you mentioned 1916 because (laughs) this year i'm i'm doing uh the 50th anniversary of birds of fire shows with ma vishnu project oh wow and and we have uh been playing celestial terrestrial commuters a lot yeah, and finding all of the different ways to divide up 19 in a more musical way than perhaps I've been trying to hang on for dear life in the past. Right. You know, now I'm sort of really dug into what's the clave and, you know, yeah. if I anticipate some things and they'll know where I am and just leaving things out and just different ways of, of strategizing 19 so that it doesn't become in the words of Jan Hammer, like a skipping record, uh-huh. and that's another thing too. Is, is talking to Jan about this stuff because I always ask questions of the masters, like what what were you guys thinking about? Mm-hmm. And you know, the, Jan was a drummer and a keyboard player.
1: Yeah. Can, so I, can you... I just jump in about celestial terrestrial commuters? Yeah, <laughs> I'm friends with a British drummer called Mark Mondaseer, who's possibly one of the greatest time signature drummers on the planet. And we were chatting about that 1916. And he goes, Of course, Andy, they did do one bar of 9 8. <laughs> and he sung it to me. And I went, They did. They did. Mark, he spotted it. So yeah, I, well, I am, th- Mark, through me, is telling you, Greg, if you're going to do it, you've got to do that bar of 9 8. I'm going to make sure Mark watches and checks you for it.
0: <laughs> Let me tell you something, Mark and Andy. I am such a stickler about that stuff. Whereas in later versions of Mahavishnu, John simplified some of the pieces for blowing, you know, sanctuary where there are extra beats added, where there are beats taken away from things. He simplified that. Well, we don't simplify anything. So you're right. There is a really, there's a clip off of one of the 19 to get a bar of 18 and and you better be right. Yeah, because well, the, otherwise you get it you know it's so easy to fall off and oh, and yeah. you know you got to know that that's going to happen and then everybody looks at each other and we just laugh about it
1: yeah but, but it's got to happen that, the, the thing that's not being said with so many people experimenting with indian music in the 1960s let's well, say something joe harrett in the uk um coltrane perhaps sure on yes. ellis but the thing that Don Ennis is bringing in is not just the modality and the, and the microtones he's bringing in that system. And I think I'm so happy to have Ralph here, you know, and say on this video that I think this is so important because this is such a feature of jazz fusion. You know, here we are talking about the Mavish Nocturne as though they get the credit for 19, but actually the work's already been done and, and actually been done 67, 68 yeah. before anyone's even got their head round. Fusion—it's right. you know—it's an incredible, yeah. incredible thing. Um, have you got any? Because you played with Frank Zappa, Ralph. Have you got any um, sort of observations of how what Don did transferred through to what Frank was doing? <clears throat>
2: That's a good question, and I really don't know if Frank was aware of Don. Um, I I always felt that Frank everything Frank did came out of Frank. Um, Yeah, he was he was certainly influenced by, you know, the the French composers of the late 19th century uh, for his more classical stuff.
0: Vérez, it should be said.
2: The blues guitar stuff that he was influenced heavily by. I I don't know that he ever had a chance to listen to or be aware of John Ellis. I just I just don't know the answer to that question.
0: Mm. Uh, Zappa, though, was a big Stravinsky guy, too, right?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, he listened to all those guys. Absolutely.
0: Berez, Straminski, Bartok.
2: Exactly. I, th- I think he had, had a correspondence with uh, with Verez, and Perez sent him a score of ionization. And, you know, I'm sure Frank sculled over that, and uh, and it developed his style, you know, part, part, part of his style.
0: It's and so Frank, interesting. Frank, Frank is such an interesting figure. I'd love to know anything about how you guys rehearsed that music and you know you and chester together or anything you want to tell us about yeah. how you put it together
2: where where don's band didn't do enough rehearsal frank's band did a lot of rehearsal
1: <laughs> how, how'd you get the gig before before we go there how did you get the gig how you, you know because obviously you were with don for a number of years right. you know you then you do the they do the soaring album which is my favorite don ellis album uh-huh. incredible you, you, and I was saying to Greg, you know, you, you're the drummer on Whiplash. You're the original Whiplash drummer. I am, <laughs> which I, which I think people don't realize. Uh,
2: of course, they don't. Yeah.
1: You know, so uh, yeah. we may have to discuss that as well, but we could leave that to. <laughs> so, so you know, how how did you go from Don to Frank? You
2: well, know, I, I was with Don on and off for five years, uh, and then I, I decided, okay, it's my time to leave. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do, except I wanted to sort of stay in town. Uh, maybe start developing a studio career, uh, play with some other people, uh, which which started to happen. And then uh, in 1973, George Duke, who's a good friend of mine from the Bay Area and was in Frank's band at the time, calls me up and says, "Frank's looking for a drummer, and he's heard many many drummers, <laughs> and maybe you should come down and play." And Frankly, I didn't have that much familiarity with Frank's music. Yeah, uh, Hot Rats and a few other things. And uh, um, I thought, here's some music I need to actually get into more. But, but uh, I wasn't quite ready yet. But uh, so I, I went down and I auditioned uh, at his rehearsal studio, full band. Uh, this was before Chester. So yep. I was a drummer. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and the band was George, jean <clears throat> Walt Ponte, uh, Bruce and Tom Fowler. Ruth Underwood Ian Underwood Frank and Sal Marquez trumpet player um, what a great band
0: that's so a band we rehearsed
2: and you know Frank he put something in front of me uh, that was pretty pretty dark looking you know a lot of black <laughs> uh, and I and I somehow managed my way through you know half half-heartedly but uh, you know my feeling was he saw I could read and and certainly I had the potential to learn that and then we would do some uh, some jamming and some odd meters. I'm sure there was a seven or something else. And, and probably 45 minutes later, he stopped and basically said, the band take a break, called me down and said, you wanna join the band? And I was it. So, uh, and I, I gotta say that after Don Ellis, I, I felt if I wanted this job, I could have it. Cause Don gave me that, that uh, confidence and that knowledge that probably no other drummer at the time had to be able to do what I was able to do.
0: Andy, you really hit it on that. I mean, it's like the prep school for Zappa is Don Ellis. It is.
1: That, I mean, that, we, we're looking at Greg, we're looking at the influence of Don Ellis in the Zappa band, because for yeah. me, I I love Zappa, but Zappa has got a spiky modernist um, avant-garde rock sound until you come in. And I I went to see my friend, and his wife's a big Zappa fan. I said, "I'm interviewing Ralph, Ralph Humphrey," and she, she went, "Oh, my favorite albums: Apostrophe, oh. Overnight Sensation, Roxy and Elsewhere." And they're, they're everybody's favorite Zappa albums. There's a change. There's a change. Yeah. I think
2: it's it's interesting. You know, I mean, fortunate for me, I was I was at that time, and and you know, people were really starting to listen to Frank, and he was he was creating more songs, and and maybe things that might get on the radio, but most of them didn't anyhow, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I really I really enjoyed that period uh, that, that uh, he was in. And a lot of people call it the golden age, you know, of Zappa, you know.
0: Well, but, it's first uh, first time we hear Inca Rhodes.
2: Yeah, and that, that went through many, many different <laughs> arrangements. Uh, the one that ends up on uh, One Size Fits All uh, is the one that I learned before I left the band. So all the material on One Size, I, I knew all that material. But uh, I, I, I left the band at that time. But uh, this is the 50th year of overnight sensation. And, and I talked to uh, Joe Travers the other day, the vaultmeister, of course, uh, you know, Universal uh, bought you know Frank's catalog and, and they were smart enough to bring Joe along. Uh, so Joe now is, is a part of that. But he said, you know we're going to be releasing some uh, of some of the, uh, some of the uh, concerts that were done in australia in 1973 in honor of the 50th anniversary of overnight sensation so that should be interesting because now it's sal marquez on trumpet and we don't have much documentation
1: of sal in that band
0: <clears throat> well which studio albums is sal on a few right
1: grand was Zoo. Is he on yeah. Waka and and yeah, and yeah. if if there is a Don Ellis influence on those albums, I I just don't get it. <laughs> you know, there's, there's you know, there's there's two guys making you know expansive rock and jazz fusion with a big band with lots of odd time signatures. One's Don Ellis, one's Frank Zappa, and Frank's doing it after Don. So uh, and Sal, you know, is the featured guy, uh, and I think it you know the the the. The inclusion of Sal also shows that Frank was listening to Miles as well, I think.
2: Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, Miles, I mean, Miles, uh, Frank would kiddingly say, you know, uh, jazz isn't dead. It just smells funny. But he surrounded himself with jazz players because why? They were the only ones that could play his music.
0: And they were cooler to hang out with probably, too. (laughs) They were more fun to be around for Frank. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, of course, George was a huge influence. and, and you know Frank was big influence on George as well. It got George to sing in the band, uh, and uh, George did just a, such a fantastic job with that. Um, <clears throat> you know, and and you know my experience in the band before Chester uh, was I, I really really I was having a ball playing that music, learning that music, playing it as well as I possibly could. Uh, for me, Frank was I was in his band. I was a side man. And whatever he wanted me to do i'll do it you know um and i became really really close with ruth underwood we had a, a wonderful relationship just what a fine instrumentalist she is mm. and uh you know then ian left the
0: integral band. integral to frank's work at that time ruth yeah, underwood totally,
2: absolutely yeah
1: and an utter virtuoso also you know great. i mean you when you look at interviews uh with ed mann and he's the respect he's got for ruth you can see that she was something else wasn't she she was
2: a prodigy at age six on the piano so she had it from a long time ago
0: but a huge influence on percussionists because you know when we were hearing bands that had tuned percussion and i'm in a percussion ensemble in high school or i'm in concert band and i hear i hear my music of my moment yeah gentle giant including you know marimba including vibraphone these kinds of things I I just wanted to say, you know, were, were huge for me because it meant that the percussion world wasn't just in the orchestra. It was now in bands and you had guys like Jamie Muir playing sheet metal and all sorts of found objects in King Crimson. So it was a, that's a glory. And that's also like 72. So it's that period is, is remarkable. Uh, Guillerme Franco with Keith Jarrett, and all the different percussion things that he was doing and right, Armin right, Halborian, right. you know, when uh, we think about that's a golden age too, for percussion, the art ensemble.
2: Yeah. 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 What Dom did with the uh, weather report, you know, and, and, you know, the sounds he was getting, you know, just really an Ayrton as well, you know,
0: Ayerto, <clears throat> Yeah. Yeah. And he's coming through miles.
2: Coming through miles. That's right. Yeah. So you many know. guys came through miles, you know, and, uh, what a what a conduit that was, huh? Just amazing. Wait, and then
1: so each... go, so, sorry, so I'm going to ask your question because I felt rude jumping into it. But earlier you were going to say what was a what what was a, a rehearsal like? So if you're if you're learning a track, say like don't eat the yellow snow, okay, is that coming in as one piece? Has he got it all charted, or are you totally working? Not. You know,
0: yeah, seeing Alfonso's, all yeah. that. So he he
2: would be events finally put together. So we would record, we rehearse an event at a time. <clears throat> and, you know, people would be writing notes down that Frank would be dictating. <clears throat> I I had a tape recorder rolling for the rehearsal. So I'd go home at night and listen to that tape and remember everything that we did because I, I wasn't writing anything down. I was, I was <laughs> learning it this way. <clears throat> I wanted to learn it this way. Wow. I didn't, I didn't need to write it. Uh, because I'm, I'm a very melodic guy too. I played clarinet for a number of years. And so to me, melody, I related to the melody and that would tell me what the rhythm was. If sure. I could sing the melody and relate to the melody, I knew what the rhythm was. <clears throat> but other people were having to write things out. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we would come to the rehearsal the next day and go over you know what we had rehearsed the, the previous day. And Frank would expect everybody to have their parts together. And, uh, and in fact they did, you know, and so then he would say, okay, let's, let's, let's do the next event. I'm putting this thing together. And eventually after five days, you know, we'd have something like St. Alfonso's or Inca Rose or whatever we were wor- working on as a piece of music. And, uh, and then we'd rehearse the heck out of it. And then Frank would change it, you know, he was constantly messing with it, you know? Well, let's do this here instead, and let us do this here instead, and then I have these hand signals, <clears throat> which could change everything on a dime, <clears throat> and we would insert a, a little element in the middle of something. Uh, and so we had we had to learn quite a few things that uh, we and it meant that we had to keep our eye on Frank at all times, because you never knew what he was about to do.
1: Can you so tell us a little?
2: Intense. Uh, but by the end of of the rehearsal time, we knew the music, it was memorized and we were ready to go.
0: Did you keep your cheat sheets?
2: No, No. I don't know that I had many actually, like I said, I I decided to learn the music just by listening to it. And, uh, and, uh, you know, obviously recording it so I could play it back and listen to it and, and, uh, recall what it was. And, uh, so to this day, I mean, I, you know, I, I re, I re I retain music pretty well. I don't retain much of anything else, but I really do retain music.
0: Good yeah. auditory memory.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly.
1: So well, this is, this, this is really interesting because I, I, I interviewed Narda Michael Walden, um, last year and I asked him the same question. I said, when you joined the Mavish Nocture, did you have charts? And he went, there ain't no charts at that level <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah,
1: and it's it's so. I think you know. Yeah, you may work on your reading, make sure you can nail this. But the these this was the the forefront of what was going on, wasn't it? So I suppose Frank maybe not didn't quite know where he was going with it and needed musicians that could that are malleable, perhaps, and could. uh,
0: you know, Ralph, you're so involved with education. So I know that you see different types of learning of music and, and it's interesting, right? So I just find it now so few kids want to learn to read because they're able to make music so naturally, so organically, even, you know, including the computer, but just that musicality comes through and to place the value of of sight reading on top of that yeah. seems in some ways less and less relevant am, am I wrong there
2: uh, no I, I think uh, you know I, I think a lot of people do have that attitude that uh, reading is not as important as it used to be because of how, how we learn now you know uh, <clears throat> but you know part of it is just you know being lazy and not learning how to read you know because it could serve you well at some point you know I mean if you're if you're looking at uh, doing a a, a musical, You know, being being in a pit band, you better know how to read, you know, um, if you're if you're playing in a a concert band or a concert orchestra, you need to know how to read, you know, and then if you're going to play with Frank Zappa, you better know how to read, you know.
0: What was the most challenging Zappa piece for you?
2: Oh, gosh, (laughs) I guess it would depend. Uh, Some of the faster stuff, for sure. Uh, that
0: seven thing in Inca roads,
2: uh, and and yes, that and also uh, Redunzel, the real fast three four. Mm. I mean, it was burning, you know. Um, but you know, in terms of the some of the reading stuff, uh, the most difficult thing I think maybe we had to learn was something called the, the bebop tango, you know, yeah. uh, which is a kind of a precursor to the black page, you know, in terms of its blackness. Uh, <laughs> But it wasn't a drum solo, it was, a, it was an ensemble piece. But, uh, you know, uh, Frank, Frank would uh, take the liberty to, to change tempos on us a lot of times and play things almost faster than we could actually play. Uh, so he was constantly challenging the band, on the bandstand, uh, to do what he wanted us to do. Uh, you know, for me, okay, go, go for it. You know, I, I hope that we hang in there. And, you know, almost always we did
0: but i love this ethic of spontaneity in frank's work there's this exactitude and then there's this complete wildness
2: that's right exactly yeah yeah he he knew how to put on a show you know he really did
1: what was uh jollo ponty's input in that band
2: what was his input
1: yeah
2: Uh, not much I, i think uh he was just one of the instrumentalists that uh just played so well and and added a a great thing to to Frank's music. But Frank would dictate to Jean-Luc what he wanted him to do. And uh, Jean-Luc would just do it, you know? So, you know, I don't see that. I don't, I don't think it went the other way. Mm.
0: Um, You know, it's, I'm I'm glad you brought up Jean-Luc because um, I know in conversations that I've had with Jean-Luc, he cites Frank as an inspiration for composition. You right. know, because I don't think Jean-Luc gets enough credit for his composing. He's quite a composer.
2: I, I agree with you.
0: And yeah. for that reason of, yes, he will have things return and modulate. He will have variation. He will have transitional sections. There's going to be material more so than there would have been in Mahavishnu very often. So oh, you okay. see the Zappa influence, not not the Mahavishnu influence, in Ponty. And right. he talks about how Frank could take an idea, one idea. And change it and develop it, yeah, and how you don't need seven ideas you could have two ideas, three ideas
2: exactly, exactly.
1: No, yeah and no, no. the, the interesting thing with Frank is is he he presented two musicians in his time, didn't he John jean luc Ponty with King Kong and El Shanker um we touched me there, both violin players and both right. who went on to play with John McGofflin. <laughs> Very strange. I I witnessed,
0: I was one of the audience members for 78 Halloween where Shankar sat in every night with Vinny on drums. Wow. In 13 and and all of the stuff. I mean, we were weeping. We had never heard drumming like that. We had heard, I knew Shakti, so we knew who Shankar was. Right. But he came out and it's one of those modal odd meter things and the drummer's going to kick the soloist and... Shankar and Vinny, I'll never forget it.
1: it wow. it's on one of the you can't do stage, and you know one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three. three there you know. go. And there's the Don Ellis thing of, of Zappa letting the audience in on the internal workings of that tune on that track. Right, right. Incredible. What what was your motivation to then um oh could you tell us a little bit about with Chester coming in? What was the decision for him to bring two drummers in? Again, Don and Donna used two drummers. So I I will point these out as we go, but why well, did why did Frank bring in another drummer?
2: Well, you know, we we did 10 concerts with the Mahavishnu Orchestra. And
0: I was hoping you were going to tell this story. Please
2: We we, we followed the Mahavishnu Orchestra. I had to follow Billy Cobham. <laughs> I,
1: I, <laughs> Ralph, can you just can it. you say can you can you just explain the effect of carbon on the drumming world at that point? You um, know, because I, I you're I right know. in there and just explain I, what it was I, like I, to I see
2: him. I knew what effect he had on me, uh, which was huge. You know, when I when I first heard the Mahavishnu Orchestra, uh, which was intermounting flame, I was on a bus with Don Ellis going to a gig, so somebody brought it in and and it, it was played, and again our, our jaws dropped what, what the heck is this now? You know, so, uh, you know, Billy was, you know, a huge influence on me. So I would, I would be backstage every concert watching them play and watching Billy and realizing, Oh my God, I am five foot six, 135 pounds. And Billy's a freaking Marine. (laughs) Just, Just so powerful. And so he, he taught me something about power. And I had to figure out how can I, how can I become stronger? Because I, I always felt I could probably be stronger in Frank's band. And so I, I recall at that very time, practicing on a pillow in, in, the, uh, in the hotel room every day, trying to work on my rebounds and everything, and just just really working hard. And I, I even started using Billy's stick, which was a bigger stick than I was using, just to, so I could get more sound. And it actually worked. I I got better. I got faster, and I got more powerful. Uh, So Billy influenced me directly by watching him. But but the band would blow me away every night. And then, you know, my thinking was, how am I going to come out on stage now, and and play? And and it occurred to me immediately. I have to play Frank's music. I have to be. I have to be in Frank's band. I got to forget about what I just saw with Mahavishnu. I I can't compete. I'm not going to compete. And so uh, th- that was a good lesson for me. Play what you know in this band, be appreciated for what this band is doing, different than what that band is doing. And so uh, that w- that was a good lesson for me. And and of course I got to chat with Billy and backstage and whatnot. And uh, you know, you know, you you talk a lot, Andy, about Billy and and being a part of the uh, the whole fusion thing, and, and maybe being in the top three or four drummers that that. Uh, you know, gave us gave us that style. Uh, but going back to Chester, so after playing those 10 concerts with the Mahavishnu, um, and Ruth Underwood sort of cites this later on when we had a discussion, uh, a round table with Chad and, and, and Chester and myself and, and Ruth and, and, and Terry. Yeah, Ruth thought maybe Frank realized the power that was coming off the band with the Mahavishnu and in order to get that in his band he needed to add another drummer so so that's one theory maybe it's maybe it's true maybe it's not um i don't really know um
0: i think so chester I right. chester has has spoken about that being the case
2: okay but yeah. after that i arrived at, at a new set of rehearsals because we were getting ready to go on the road again and lo and behold there's two drum sets on the stage unbeknownst to me Frank had hired Chester Thompson. And so I walked in now with, oh, what's going on, you know? And Frank didn't say a word. Uh, And I met Chester and uh, suddenly he was in the band. And and so it's like, well, how's this gonna work out? You know, and and I I was feeling weird. Uh, I was not, I didn't know what this meant, you know? uh, what was my role going to be? Was it going to change? Uh, was Frank not happy with what I was doing? I, a thousand things went through my head. Uh, so we started rehearsing. And by the end of the rehearsal, I, I, I had to decide am I, I'm a, am I going to stay in or am I going to get out? And I decided to stay in because, well, this worked out in Don's band with more than one drummer, and certainly can work out here. And I and I can accept this. You know, Chester is certainly a great drummer. And uh, but what we're going to have to do is learn how to play with one another, because Chester comes from Baltimore. He's an r drummer, jazz drummer. I come from the West Coast as, as white as you can be. Uh, and and how are we going to come together here? You know,
1: hello, everybody. Here I am with the legendary drummer Ralph Humphrey from the Don Ellis Band and from the Frank Zappa Band. Um, we've been chatting all afternoon and uh, we've had computer problems. We may have lost, it may be the great lost interview, mightn't it Ralph, <laughs> that we've had discussing all these different things musically. And uh, we've just back, just uh, jumped back online. We've lost Greg Bendian, who was in the conversation, but uh, me and Greg just started chatting and, and we were, I was just about to ask Greg, what was the music you grew up listening to? And I thought, well, let's just hit record and see what we get. Rob. So, uh, you know what what was in your house growing up
2: well my mother was a pianist and uh she played light classics although she played you know some chopin and debussy and um she was pretty good and uh she she listened to a lot of uh, ragtime dixieland um, so i was listening to a lot of that and kind of getting into the whole idea of swing and uh you know, but I was a clarinetist. I started clarinet at age nine and uh, became pretty proficient actually. And I went through high school and junior college as a clarinetist. So I played about 12 years and my mother would accompany me on these little festivals and I would earn, you know, red and blue ribbons and things like that. And uh, But that's how I learned how to read was by playing the clarinet. And of course, learning how to play in an ensemble, uh, playing the clarinet was also valuable to me for later on when I played in the ensembles of Don Ellis and Frank Zappa and others. So, you know, I I thank my mother for my early education in music and I I came to love it. Uh, I I knew that I sort of had a propensity toward it and and that kind of, that's kind of how it started.
1: And you, and you are involved. I mean, you're known for playing some incredibly complex and innovative you know, music with Don and Frank. How, how do you feel melody relates to dense rhythms? How do, how do you think they relate?
2: Well, they relate perfectly. Uh, uh, you know, melody is so important in music, and most people relate to melody more than anything else. Uh, so if you can sing the melody to something, you're also singing the rhythm of that melody, you know, without even knowing what the rhythm might be. Because the melody is telling you what the rhythm is, and so I, I relate a lot to melody in music, and I think it helped me a lot with uh, playing with Don and playing with Frank. Uh, but before that, when I was you know in high school just practicing the drums, I played a lot to the Dave Brubeck Quartet, uh, and the melody there was so important. You know, uh, I, I can sing every note that uh, that Dave played, and 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 the sax player as well. Uh, Um, uh, but of course I was in love with Joe Morello, but uh, I kind of learned how to play in five in high school before I even know that it was going to turn out to be valuable later on in my career.
1: Yeah, That's interesting. I mean, I, 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 I think Brubeck was, you know, he was the first pioneer of time signatures, wasn't he? And that was so important. And and I've always felt there was a relationship between Brubeck and Don Ellis, and I've never been able to quite work out what that is, but this, what you've said about melody is very interesting because I'll show off with my students and I'll play, I'll play a 10 over four, but I don't really know what a 10 over four is. I just think of, <laughs> you know, the, yeah. the melody yeah. of, of Montana is my 10 over four. You know, that is, exactly. that is yeah. It's the melody exactly that does it. Is. It's, it's the, it's the, it's the shape, you know, of, of the melody, the contour yeah. I feel is, is, is where rhythm is. It's a it's a really interesting thing. So that's that's very interesting you started on clarinet. How how did you start on drums? How did how did the uh, drumming coming uh, about?
2: that's interesting too. Uh, in high school um I guess I was always sort of interested in drums, although I didn't know that I would eventually play the drums. But I didn't know what I was gonna do anyhow. I mean I was playing clarinet at the time and uh, uh, but um I was, uh, my mom bought this record called Pete Fountain Day. Pete Fountain's a great clarinetist, jazz, sort of jazz clarinetist. Um, and I was trying to play along with him, you know, learning about his licks and whatnot. Because I was definitely interested in, in jazz and all that sort of mm. thing. But he had a drummer in his band and his name was Jack Sperling. And Jack Sperling was a great session musician in Los Angeles. Um, but he happened to also play with Pete. And, and so as I was lis- listening to Pete, I was also beginning to listen to Jack and what he was doing and it really turned me on. And so at that point, I think I asked my mom for a pair of sticks, uh, just so I could maybe tap along you know, uh, with what was going on. And uh, the next thing I know, I'm, uh, I'm playing clarinet in this Dixieland band, this high school Dixieland band. And we had this one, you know, uh, gig at a at a shopping mall in my hometown. And uh, the drums were there, but the drummer did not show. Uh, and so somebody had to sit down and play the drums. And so I sat down, and I I knew the music, and I kind of knew what to do on the drums. And that was the beginning of it. After after that day, it was like, oh, I really like this. <laughs> <laughs> I really like this, you know. Uh, so that, that I played clarinet continuously still, but, but I became a drummer and, and started getting into the jazz band in high school and joined another Dixieland band, you know, out of school as the drummer. And uh, from that point I went to junior college in San Mateo. Uh, I had some wonderful teachers. Uh, one was the, uh, the jazz band director who had a, uh, had a gig band outside of school, and I was fortunate enough to join that band and actually start gigging as a drummer in San Francisco. And that and that kind of was the beginning of my drumming career.
1: And what about things like the technical, you know, the say rudimental playing and hand technique? Did you have lessons um, or?
2: I, I uh, My high school teacher was a drummer and he would show me some things, but I guess I was essentially self-taught. Um, I learned a lot by listening. Um, my technique was okay. Uh, but I, I didn't really get into technique till later. Um, uh, and, uh, learning, learning about motion and, and, and whatnot, uh, which I teach to this very day. So yeah, te- technically technique lessons came a little bit later, but not that many lessons. I was really kind of self-taught.
1: Yeah. same here. I mean, I my, I, I learned off of the records I listened to. I, I really yeah. did. Um, and, uh, my dad. It, 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 he he taught me how to do a jazz swing and he would make me just play jazz swing um, and I think if you can swing that jazz swing gives you the, the three basic strokes of drumming, <laughs> you know, you get the sort of whip down and then the wrist comes up and then the pull out and, and I, I really feel that that is a contained in jazz, there's so much contained in jazz swing, so much it's like yes. esoteric information hidden inside that the feel of it, the, there's a sort of three against two feel, so you get sort of polyrhythmical, dotted eighth note thing going on, and you get the technique, and the, yeah. you get weight and dynamics on syncopation. It's it's a, it's such an important education to learn how to swing.
2: Yeah, uh, listening. You know, I I talk to my students all the time about you know reading and, and listening. You know, they go together. You know, you 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 need both skills, but you certainly need to have this skill you know um some people can hear things and they have no idea what it is is until they see it other people um you know uh, don't need to see it they just they just hear it and can play it and uh i don't know i think that's a that's a gift that many of us have that we can actually hear something and and actually play it back or sing it or whatever um and have a, a sort of a natural understanding of what it is uh, maybe we can't write it because you know maybe our skill there is not so good but uh fortunately for me because i played clarinet i really learned how to how to read and then playing percussion instruments later on in college uh also helped me out a lot
1: and did you feel when you got the gig with the don ellis band it was it was was it the reading or obviously you've got a lot of understanding of sort of wind ensembles and orchestration as well playing the clarinet so uh did you feel that was the thing that sort of don spotted
2: it was a combination of things you know um again i for some reason had a a skill to to understand what he was talking to me about regarding rhythm and how the eastern way of rhythm is definitely different than the western way of rhythm in terms of how you analyze it, how you play it, how you hear it, uh, and the grouping concept—that uh, was so enlightening, and and I totally understood it. What I had to do was learn how to feel it. You know, understand the mechanics. I got I got that. Then it was to how do you get loose in this, and and that was probably the thing that I was trying to uh, to work on as I played in the band was I, I want to feel free in nine or in seven, or even in 19, you know, uh, how, how do I open it up? <clears throat> and, uh, I think, uh, Don really helped me there to, to learn how to do that. And, uh, I was able eventually to, to, uh, feel pretty comfortable in just about any time signature.
1: Um, what could you, uh, I mean, Obviously, we've done this interview and it's it's all sort of gone a little bit wrong. So anyone's watching this, we've been talking for about an hour, haven't we? <laughs> and then the computer's crashed. Oh, yeah. And I said yeah. to, to Ralph, you know, I, I, we can't talk about that again. But I really would like to get across to my viewers the importance of Don Ellis and the influence he had on not only jazz rock and prog. Can you just, could you just talk a little about, a bit about that, you know, what you felt he brought to the music scene at that time?
2: Yeah, well, you know, um because, you know, that was happening in 1965 with his band and I had had the good fortune of uh being turned on to that first record by my uh my college teacher. Um I I was enthralled with what I was hearing. I'd never heard anything like it before. I w- I loved who the drummer was, Steve Bohannon. Uh I felt that he was playing some really interesting stuff and uh and you know, the uh, the band director told the band, I'm bringing Don in to play with our, our band in a few months. And so we're gonna play some of this material. And I thought, oh, oh boy, this is gonna be fun. And he said, and we're bringing his drummer as well. So, uh, you know, during that time, I had a chance to really dig into the record and listen to it all. I, I, uh, I think eventually we got sent charts, uh, which was helpful just so I could see the relationship of what I was hearing to what the chart looked like and of course Don's charts were not written in a typical way he would write out the subdivision yeah there would be a time signature but there would also be a subdivision of that time signature um so you could see the 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 linear fashion of the rhythm you know the the cyclic fashion of the rhythm and so as i as i watched the uh, the written music and listened to the uh, them playing i was able to sort of bring the two together and really understand where his music was coming from, and uh, as advanced as it was, because no one else was doing that, and uh, and I, I listened to the drummer a lot. I loved his energy. I loved his way he set things up. You know, he was he just seemed very comfortable in what he was doing. And so lo and behold, when the band did, when Don did come up to to play with our band, uh, his drummer Steve missed the airplane and was and did not play the rehearsal. I got to play the rehearsal so that was that was a huge education right there, and it gave Don a chance to to hear where I was coming from at the time. and certainly um, at the very least, I had some potential and uh, and he saw that because later on he gave me a call uh, a few months later and said, "Please come down and audition for the band," which is what I did.
1: Yeah, you're, you're you're such a gentleman ralph because you, i can tell you they're heavyweight studio player because you're doing a second take on this for all you're watching we, we've been chatting for ages with with the great greg bendian and i'm sat here and uh it's like these computers crash Greg's gone, so i thought well i'll get a you know we'll hit record and we'll have a chat and you're doing a second take and it's absolutely perfect so i, I you know respect for able to do that what i'm going to do to Thank mix these you. things up i've got two albums i want to show you because i know you i know you love my channel and you love seeing all the records and what i talk about so i'm just going to grab a record that's very important to me uh, Rob.
0: Okay.
1: as a 12 year old budding drummer listening to acdc i went through my dad's collection i think a week after i started drumming and i found this album which is actually a very rare album and it's very hard to find anything about it by Roger Kellaway, Spirit Field, featuring a 17 year old Tom Scott. And on the back, yep. you have got um, basically a description of each tune. And so you get um, 10 to 5, written by Emil Richards, incorporating the use of 10 4 and 5 4. The tune is constructed into two alternative sections. The 10 4 section is subdivided 3 3 3 1. The 5 4 section is 3 2. This was so important. And uh, I, yeah. I brought it, you know, talking to you, even though you're not on this album, I brought it in because I felt you must have connections with these guys. Roger Kellaway Tom Scott, Chuck Domenico, John Guerin, Paul Beaver, Red Mitchell. <laughs> well, I mean, the great Red Mitchell, yep. you know, uh, yep. um, that, 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 it was such an incredible breakthrough, wasn't it? It was what Don brought from Indian music into the way, We all now play drums, this what I call additive rhythm. You know, how would you describe it? This rather than dividing everything up into the crotchet, this idea of having clusters of uh, 16th notes or eighth notes, you know?
2: Absolutely. Additive rhythm is the perfect description. Uh, uh, Breaking things down not according to, you know, subdivisions of beats, but subdivisions of the bar according to threes and twos or multiples of threes and twos. So, you know, um, that's what Don Ellis taught me because I, I took some lessons with Don. I took some lessons with Hari Harao along with some of the other people you just mentioned there, Mm. because they were also in Don's band, at least in his sextet before the big band. And, uh, and so there was a, there was a crowd of musicians in LA that were onto this, onto this. And I think Don was the catalyst and uh and so he's he's such an important figure with all this and uh you know steve bohannon was a member of that kind of group and uh, uh along with uh, well garen john Garen was just a wonderful player uh in in so many different ways I, I watched him a lot when i moved to la uh and learned a lot from john and uh and he also had a propensity towards playing odd meters you know i don't think he was as skilled as steve bohannon was but he certainly understood how to how to get through something. Just a, just a wonderful musician.
1: Steve uh, O'Hannon is a he's a legendary drummer, isn't he? He's really a pioneer of odd time signature playing. And you know, I think he's he's not known. He he after Electric Bath and those albums where he would really pioneered that approach. I I think he died in '68, was it? In a car crash.
2: Yeah, he died at age 21. Yeah, 21. Was tragic, really was.
1: Um. And uh, you know we talked about this earlier, but you, you know you brought this knowledge into the Zappa band, um, and I think from what you've been saying, I felt that that when you joined the band with Overnight Sensation, Apostrophe, Rocks in Elsewhere, there was a swing and a groove to those time signatures which I don't think Zappa had had before you came in, and I don't think you get the credit for that. You know there was a there was a funkiness to that band, wasn't there? <laughs>
2: Yes, there was. I, I agree with you. Yeah. And I, I can thank, you know, what I did with Don, what I learned with Don Ellis, because we played a number of different styles. You know, we rarely played in 4-4 actually, but uh, occasionally we did. And at the same time, I was learning about other grooves and things like that in Los Angeles, playing with other people. So I, I was giving myself an education as, you know, uh, as well as being playing with Don Ellis and recording with him. So, um, I was because I, I always had a, a, in my mind that I wanted to do do a do sessions. I thought I had I had the ability to be a session musician. I knew how to play with a click. I, I knew all the styles. Uh, I could get a good sound. I had a good feel, uh, and I could read. I think reading was you know one of the one of the good things I had in my pocket. Whatever you want to throw in front of me now after Don Ellis, it's going to be okay. I can handle it. You know
1: that's that's interesting um, I, I, when I was growing growing up I got a copy of electric bath that was a very important album for me but my favorite Don Ellis album was soaring uh, I, I felt the band was so tight on that and so there was just a, a conciseness to that and and tightness electric bath is quite sprawling and psychedelic isn't it and I think shock treatment that you're I think the first one you're on is very similar but soaring yes. and and I love that album um it's it's since sort of gone down into drum history because it contains the tune whiplash you are the original whiplash drummer, so can you tell us a little bit about that <laughs> album and a little bit about that session
2: well I, I I agree with you that the band does sound tighter on that record um I don't know why i you know we probably rehearsed those tunes and uh Played them on the road before we recorded, so everybody was pretty familiar with the material. Uh, but yeah, that Whiplash is on that on that record, and uh, of course the uh, the ensuing movie featuring that song. Um, I, I I had a hard time watching that movie, by the way.
1: <laughs> well, I, I, I mean this this is going to be the great moment of this video, I think, is that you know the original Whiplash drummer here you are, Ralph, and I don't think you've got credit for that. You know that when they made that film and they wanted a hard drum track. They went for Mr. Ralph Humphrey and his performance on that tune. So, you know, what do you think of the film?
2: <laughs> well, I, I, I can't agree with the, the, the film regarding, you know, the, 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 the leader, um, his, his treatment of the band and especially the drummer. I mean, that's, that's just not how you do things. So I, I, I was I was troubled with that. Um, and, uh, you know, Hank Levy, the composer of that, that film, and are you still there?
1: Yeah, I'm just having a little bit of problems there. Okay,
2: good. Yeah, <laughs> you, know, um, you
1: can st- Hank- you can, st- you, can st- you can still hear me, can't you?
2: Okay, Hank Levy is the composer of that tune, and, and Hank wrote a lot for Don, and Hank Hank had a great band in uh, in Baltimore at Towson State College, and uh, and Don found uh, in Hank uh, a sort of uh, enjoyment of how he was writing, you know, and and I think it helped Don to Don to bridge the gap between Don's sort of crazy sub- sub- compositions and, and, and Hank's more in the groove, in the pocket kind of thing. Mm. So Whiplash was kind of a pocket tune, you know, in Seven. And uh, the fact that they ended up using the song in, uh, in, in, the, in the film Whiplash, I thought was kind of interesting. But, you know, nobody ever contacted me to talk about my performance of the, of the original Whiplash or, or even ask me to play on, on that on that film. Uh, they they did it completely uh, separate from, you know, from me and and my knowledge of it. So when it when it came out, I was I was sort of, I, I chuckled.
1: <laughs> I bet you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, when I watched it, I, I thought as a uh, as a, a piece of entertainment, I was entertained by it. I was drawn into the characters. Yeah. As, as a description of how music's made, it just lacks the love. I mean, for me, great music is an expression of love. I, I mean, I'm played for forty years. Took me a while to realize it, you know. But you're you're with the musicians because you love them, and it and, and that's how you get performances out of people. I and mean, you can, people can be harsh. I'm sure Frank Zappa was harsh with you, but it's a different type of harshness, isn't it? It's there's it's Well, that... it
2: was. Yeah, I mean, I I could handle Frank because I, I respected him so much for for his. His compositions and what he wanted, he wanted perfection, um, and so he 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 got a band together that gave him near perfection, uh, pretty much most of the time, and uh, and I was okay with that, you know, um, and you know five five days a week rehearsals for three or four weeks before going on the road, that was that was the routine, and uh, and so you know by the time four weeks was up, we were ready to go. And and that's why the band came off so well because it was so darn tight, playing this really difficult music.
1: But the, and, uh, the, those albums are the most accessible albums, and he doesn't compromise. It's it's also got another level of of metric density from what he went before. The the compositions you know mixed you know uh, um, the middle section of Montana Saint Alfonso you know oh, yeah. um, bebop tango. Uh these are incredible. But for many people these are their favorite Zapper albums. That band was a magical band, wasn't it?
2: Well, I, I thought it was. I really enjoyed myself and I thought the personnel was was top notch. You know, I I c I couldn't imagine playing with better players than George Duke and Jean Luc and Ian and Ruth and the Fowler brothers and you know, it was just amazing.
1: He, he he brought something out of George Duke, didn't he? Because George Duke was a heavy, heavyweight jazz pianist. And Frank turned George him into this pop star, songwriter, funky, parliament, funkadelic, you know, virtuoso yeah. jazz keyboardist. It's, it's, uh...
2: Absolutely. George brought the funk in the band. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I relate a lot to keyboard players uh, when I play drums. Uh, and what George would lay down would always be so damn funky and and I just loved playing with him, you know. He was very, very much a catalyst in that band.
1: Um, after you left, after you left, Frank Zappa, was that too? You know, you you said you wanted to pursue a, a career as a session player. Was that the reason why?
2: I, I, you know, this is funny. You know, people. You know, leave bands for various reasons. Um, I I came to a point in 1974. I can't remember the exact moment that that happened, but I just felt it's, I've done my time. You know, I've done this. I, I've i really enjoyed it, but I, I want to do something else. And so I, I made the decision to leave the band. And, you know, um, I never knew how Frank felt about that, whether he was ready for me to leave the band or it, it didn't seem to bother him because he, he went straight ahead and, and Chester, you know, went from that point on. But I, you know, I, I felt fine about it. Um, I didn't miss playing in the band. I really felt like I, I contributed a lot. I had a lot, a lot of fun, traveled the world, uh, met some wonderful people that I still am, am friends with to this day. And uh, and but I wanted, I wanted to do something else.
0: Ralph, be- before you split, man, thank you so much. I mean, this is just an honor to talk to you. But I had to yeah. ask you about one of my favorite recordings that you're on, and we just recently lost Wayne Shorter. Yeah, I was wondering if you could talk about the the uh, Atlantis sessions.
2: Well, thank you. I I, uh, that was a special moment for me, I have to say, you know, you know, being in love with uh, Miles and Wayne and the whole 63 through 68 band with Tony and Herbie. I mean, I, I I can't tell you how much I played those records and how much I love that band um, and uh, and then Wayne going to Weather Report and loving that band um, so um, were you
0: ever up for Weather Report
2: no I guess that's the one band I wish I could have played with that would have been
1: Ralph you did wonderful on this one <laughs> <laughs>
2: It's the closest I got. Yeah, it's
1: the close. yeah, this, I was just, I, I, before we started recording, I was. this album was so important to me growing up, this was, you know, this, the, you know, this is one of my the dad's albums, and, uh, you know, I learned every single track, and for me, the definitive version of Birdland is the one on here, with you, uh, you and you Jeff Picaro drumming, you know, so. Uh, so, um,
2: Joe Vitarelli, the composer of uh uh, endangered species. I had worked for him before, and um, so Wayne endangered
0: had, species is not a Wayne composition.
2: Apparently not. I know. Uh, now maybe maybe there was collaboration, uh, and maybe and maybe I'm wrong. But I I, I think Joe got credit for the composing uh, of that tune.
0: But it's such a Wayne tune.
2: It's such a Wayne tune. Of course it is. I know. <laughs> So we need to find the answer to that one.
0: That's interesting. I didn't know Wayne collaborated compositionally. I thought Wayne had everything.
2: Maybe it's strictly Wayne and he had Joe put it down on the synthesizer. Well,
0: because that's also an interesting turning point in Wayne's career because now what? He's doing a lot more MIDI. He's doing a lot more... Synthesized arrangements right he can yeah. and the drums were live but other stuff was programmed right That's
2: right it was all programmed yeah for everything else you hear except for me and Wayne and percussion is synthesizer <clears throat> so uh Joe calls Kids me. voices up. Joe calls me out there in this there in the studio and he says I I need you because you know how to read <laughs> and Wayne is here and we have this track this final track for the record that we need to do can you come down i said well of course <laughs> i'm coming down Are you kidding uh so i did and uh you know the chart was printed out it must have been eight nine pages long uh, so i stretched it out in front of the drums i got the drums there um, i listened to it down I, I looked at it and wayne is in the in the control room not saying a word um he's letting me just sort of grok it you know and uh and so i, I kind of in my head, kind of see, thought about it and what I wanted to do. So I, I moved a China boy to my left side because I wanted to do something this way, not that way. And kind of kind of decided what's, what's the first section going to be? What's the sec- second section going to be? And then there's that incredible syncopated couple of time sections at the end. And I said, I need to keep the groove. I can't just go crazy now with all these figures because it's going to just break it down. So, so I had that in my mind. And so,
0: uh, so you groove through all those, but you hit those accents.
2: I hit the accents, but I'm still giving you the backbeat, right? I wanted to bring both of them together because I didn't want the groove to go away. So actually, when I when I went out to record the drums, Wayne also came in and and was playing along with me. So he has some other takes that he did that I recall that were fantastic, of course. but it, you know it took me a few times to go through it until i said okay i think i'm ready and then and then we started recording and uh and uh, and i got it finally and uh it it's it's a challenging piece of music but uh <laughs> yeah. when i when i finished and when i listened to it back i i just felt so great that i was going to be on a record with Wayne Shorter
1: your channel is becoming like it's it's just like an encyclopedia of progressive musicians and i think You know, in in the future, it will be seen as a very important resource. Anyway, less than a minute is saying. saying
0: Thank you. That's the goal, everybody. Thank you. Love the music. See you all in
1: a bit. See you all in a bit. (laughs)
0: Bye-bye.